Uh, can I ask you to turn with me, please, to Esther chapter 1? Esther chapter 1, beginning our new series on the book of Esther. If you're using the uh, church Bibles, the, the bigger one, the green one, it's on page 410. Page 410. If you're using one of the other ones, you can look at the index. Lah. Uh, in your bulletin, there is a, uh, in the center page of one of those handouts, there is an outline of where we're going, so it might be helpful to have that with you as well. Esther chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 20. Well, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And we pray now that as we come to this book of Esther, and today, and in the, the weeks to come, uh, that you'll be doing all those things uh, for us and in us. We pray for your Spirit to help us, the Spirit who gave these words to be written. May He be working in our hearts, uh, causing us to uh, see Christ, to appreciate Him, to love Him, to obey Him, to live our lives for His glory. We pray that He will help me to uh, preach uh, Your Word rightly and in His power. And we ask that Christ be honored in all these things. We ask this in His name. Amen. When you look at your life, do you ever wonder if God is at work? You know, when you read the Bible, you, you read about Abraham, you, you read about God speaking to him face to face, and then you read about Moses and you see God doing amazing signs and wonders for him and his people, and then you go and read about Elijah and Elisha, and you see astounding miracles, and you think, is God always doing this? If so, then why... Aren't I experiencing this? Well, well, today we begin this new series from the book of Esther, and while we don't see any of these things, it is abundantly clear that God is at work. He is at work to save His people and punish His enemies. And over the next few weeks, we will see how He does that. Uh, the book of Esther is set about 500 years before Christ. And it begins with the show of greatness of a king, King Ahasuerus. He reigned, it says, from India to Ethiopia. That's a huge area. Uh, coming up on the screen, you'll see the map that shows it's over 127 provinces. He is the king of a large empire. And he sat, uh, in verse 2, on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. Uh, you can't really see Susa there very clearly. Can you see where it says Persian Empire? A little bit to the south of that, in red. Okay, uh, That's where Susa is. Uh, he sits there on his royal throne, and he rules over this great empire. He's a great king. But he wants people to know that he's a great king. 
And so in the third year of his reign, he gives a great feast. And at the beginning of verse 3, we see that this feast is for all his officials and servants, the people who work for him. And they include, in verse 3, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces that were before him. This is a huge feast. And for 180 days, six months, an unprecedented length of time for a celebration, he showed, in verse 4, the riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness. A great feast from a great king. But that's not all. The climax of this great feast was an even greater feast. In verse 5, he says that when those days were completed, he gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, that's uh, both great and small, a feast. This is even huger. Everyone in the citadel, that's the fortified area in the city, was invited. And it was held in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So it's outside, but he doesn't just put a tent outside the palace and, you know, hand out styrofoam packs of nasi lemak and cans of yohyap saying, right? Right. Look, look how it's described in verse 6. White cotton curtains, violent hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple, silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold and silver, mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, precious. It, it might be outdoors, but this is absolutely over-the-top lavish. Even the drinks in verse 7 are served in golden vessels. Vessels of a different kind, just showing how rich this king is. And he's not only rich, but, but he's generous because it says the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the rule for drinking in verse 8 is there is no compulsion. Which doesn't just mean that people don't have to drink if they don't want to. It means they can drink as much as they like. Free flow, free flow wine in golden vessels. For the king, in verse 8, had given orders to the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. What a huge, huge feast. But he's not the only one giving a feast. Verse 9 says that Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so we realize that not everyone is at King's, the king's feast. The, the men were there, but the ladies, at least the ladies of the palace, were at another feast with his wife, the queen. Now, it's the seventh and last day of the feast. The king is slightly drunk. His heart, verse 10, is merry with wine. He's been showing off for 180 days in this pretentious feast. He's especially showing off in this last seven. And now, to cap it off, he decides he wants to show off his queen. So, he tells seven eunuchs who serves in his presence, Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass, to go and get her. They had to bring her, verse 11 says, before the king with her royal crown. Now, some commentators think this means that the royal crown was the only thing she was meant to be wearing, but we don't know that for sure. Whatever it is, the reason he wants her, verse 11, is in order to show the people and the princess her beauty for she was lovely to look at. 
that he's still showing off. But the king's plan backfires. In verse 12, Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And suddenly, what is meant to be the, the, the climax of the king's self-glorification, that what's meant to be making him look so good after all these six months and these seven days, suddenly, he becomes embarrassed. And let me tell you, that for many men, when their ego is pricked, <laughs> the automatic response is anger, isn't it? And this, verse 12, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Although the king is angry, he's with it enough to consult before he makes a decision. He has seven wise men, who in verse 13 are well-versed in law and judgment. They have access to him. They're highly influential. They're called princes of Persia. And their names in verse 14 are Kashina, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memuken. And the king asked them in verse 15, According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? What do we do with her? Right. Sounds like a pretty well, objective procedural question. She hasn't done this, what do we do? But don't forget, we know the anger behind it, and so do these wise men. We know how to handle him. The last one, Memuken, says in the presence of the king and of his officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. Uh, this very day the noble women of Persia and Media have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. So if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Medes and the Persians, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before Queen Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than her. So that when the decree is made by the king and proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, you see the, the little, for it is vast there, right? all the women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. So the, king's, the king thinks this is a good idea. He's pretty happy with this. The other officials are pretty happy with it as well. See, there's a good objective reason or excuse to do what the king wants to do in his anger. And he says, instead of just being the king, actually I'm acting on behalf of my whole country to try and to help this, everybody. And so he sends letters to all the province, each in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and Speak according to the language of his people. Presumably the last bit means that in a mixed marriage household, the husband's language is the one that should be used. Well, the next scene opens sometime later. Maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe even a year or two. The king has come down and he's missing his queen. He remembers what she did and what had been decreed against her. Maybe there's a note of sadness or regret, but things can't go back. The law of the Medes and the Persians can't be changed. You can't, you've got to move on. 
and the young men who attended him have got a suggestion. They want the king to get all the eligible, beautiful young women in the kingdom and bring them together, beautify them, and then let the king choose from among them. From the end of verse 2. Let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Again, the king likes the idea, and so that is what he plans to do. Now we have another shift in scene in verse 5, because here we are introduced to the two heroes of the book. The first one, in verse 5, is Mordecai. He is named after Marduk, a Babylonian god. Now that's a little bit surprising, isn't it? But he's a Jew. He is, verse 5 continues, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now those of you who know your Bible history, you may realize that this means he's the same family as who? King Saul. No? Right? Kish was Saul's father. And this is one of the families who in verse 6 had been exiled to Babylon at the earlier exile, 597 BC, about 100 years before this. Right? Some of you may remember the Babylonians conquered uh, Jerusalem in 597 BC. They took away the king uh, and the upper classes, uh, and then they installed a puppet king. Uh, and then later the puppet king rebelled, and 10 years later they came back and they destroyed everything. Uh, they killed many people and took, many, uh, took most, uh, most of the other people off into exile. So Mordecai's family, they've come up in that first exile, that, that first, that the upper strata group, they've come out. They've been carried away from Jerusalem, verse 6, among the captives when Jeconiah, king of Judah, had, had, had gone, the first lot of exiles. Um, uh, and uh, so they had gone to Babylon. So his family in Babylon, which is probably why he's got a Babylonian name. And then, you remember, the Babylonians themselves lost to the Medes and the Persians. Right? And so Babylon itself uh, was overrun, and the people who were there were taken to, 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 to belong to the Medes and the Persians, which is how he ends up in Susa. That's Mordecai. And then we're introduced to the second hero. We know her as Esther, which is a Persian or Babylonian name, but first and foremost, she's introduced in verse 7 as Hadassah. That's a Hebrew name, which means myrtle. We are told in verse 7 that Mordecai is bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. So she's an orphan, and he's bringing her up. She's a pretty young lady. Verse 7 says that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. But we already know she is someone who has known hardship and tragedy. And verse, continu verse 7 continues that she has neither father nor mother, underlining that fact. Must be a terrible thing, isn't it, to lose both your parents at a young age? Esther, from the very start, knows how to suffer grief and pain. She knows what it's like. 
And she also knows what it's like to receive care and support from God's people like, like Mordecai. So now that we've met our heroes, we go back to the story. Uh, the king's order and edict have been proclaimed. And many young women are gathered in Susa, and they're put in verse 8 under the custody of the king's eunuch, Haggai. Right? Because he's a eunuch, he can be trusted lah, to look after the young women. And one of the young women who were taken into the citadel was Esther. And for some reason, in verse 9, Esther pleased Haggai and won his favor. He was kind to her. He put her on the, the fast track to get her cosmetics and food. Uh, he gave her seven young women, uh, perhaps to, to assist her in her beauty treatment. He advanced her to the best place in the harem. We don't know why he's showing kindness to her, but he is. He doesn't know, though, that she's a Jew. Now, Mordecai had commanded her to keep it secret, and she did. Again, we don't know why uh, they thought it should be secret. Maybe they were under pressure or persecution. Uh, maybe he didn't want Esther to face the prejudice. Uh, but we know that he cared for her like his own daughter. Uh, and every day, in verse 11, uh, every day he would walk to the front of the heck for the, in front of the court of the harem to, to find out how she was going and what's happening to her. Before the focus uh, shifts into Esther again, the narrator's got something more to tell us about the procedure that was, setting, that was set up for finding the king's wife to replace Vashti. Here's the deal. Each of the women had a 12-month beautification treatment. Right? Six months with oil of myrrh in verse 12 and six months with spices and ointments. Uh, and then she would have her turn in verse 13 uh, to go in to the king. Right, that's a phrase with God, with her sexual overtones. Uh, and she's allowed to take anything that she wants with her. Presumably some people might have taken perfume, some might have taken fruits or, or other things uh, considered aphrodisiac. Some might take special clothes or jewels. And she'll go into the king in the evening and spend the night with him. And in the morning she'll come out again, hoping that he's been pleased with the night. And once she'd been in, she'll move to the care of another eunuch, uh, Shazgaz, who was in charge of the concubines, and unless there's a specific request from the king, she will never go in again. It's a pretty rotten system for those young women, isn't it? Well, it's now coming to Esther's turn. And she wisely takes the advice of Haggai when deciding what to bring in. In fact, she's not only won favor in his sight, but she's winning favor in the sight of everyone who sees her. But Here's the big question. Will she win favor in the sight of the king? Well, she's finally taken into him in verse 16. Into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Right, this is now about four years after Vashti is deposed. And what happens? Is she going to be tried and used and cast away like the other ones before her? Well, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. Ah, that's, that's different, isn't it? Esther has been chosen. She's been loved by the king. And so verse 17 continues, he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the first thing he does after that, of course we know what he's going to do, he gives a 
great feast. All right, you see the pattern? He gives a great feast for all his officials and servants, and this time it's Esther's feast. This is good news. He's, he's got a queen. All right, so he wants everyone to be happy. He grants remission of taxes to the province and gives gifts with royal generosity. And that's as far as we're taking the story today. So, how does what we've seen today fit in the book of Esther, and how does it fit into the Bible, and how does it apply to us? Let's have a think about this. What we have in this story is God setting things up for a great work of salvation and judgment. Do you notice that God is not actually mentioned in this passage? Uh, in fact, he's not actually mentioned in the whole book of Esther. But once we know the end of the story, we will know that he is at work setting things up right throughout the story so that we get to salvation and judgment at the end. Now, I'm not going to tell you how at this stage. Let's spoil the story for you. Uh, but I will tell you that by the end of the book, God is going to save his people and punish his enemies. And this passage sets up the scene for the drama that will unfold so that this can happen. But this whole book is part of a bigger setting of the scene. There's a bigger scene that God is setting up to, to save his people and punish his enemies. Israel was God's people. And God had promised that his chosen king, his spirit-anointed servant, his final prophet, his son, the savior of the world, would come from this race. And by sovereignly working to save his people, he was preserving them to set things up so that he would fulfill this big promise. And what we have read today, and in fact the whole of the book of Esther, is part of that setting of the scene that God prepared for God to come in the person of Jesus Christ to save his people and punish his enemies. Now what do we mean when we say that God was working sovereignly behind the scenes to, 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 to set the scene yeah, for this? Let me try and explain. When we look at God's work, we often see him interacting with the world. As I said before, we see him speaking with Moses, doing signs and wonders to rescue Israel out of Egypt. We see him proclaiming judgment and people being struck down. We see him as a player on the stage, a character in the story of our world. But he's not just a character in the story. He's the author of the story as well, isn't he? Everything that happens is under his control. Jesus said not even a sparrow can fall to the ground without our father. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis? Right? God wanted Joseph to be in charge of Egypt so he could save his people and continue the line that would lead to Jesus. And God worked through the evil of the brothers who sold him to slavery. Yes, they're responsible for their actions, but, but God used them. And he gave Joseph favor in the sight of one person after another after another and exalted him so that finally Joseph could look back on the whole thing and say to his brothers, actually, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God was working sovereignly behind the scenes. Now, of course, in the Joseph story, he's also a character because he gives interpretation to the dreams, etc. Right? But here in Esther, God seems hidden all the time. We don't see him as a character, but we know that behind the scenes, he's actually calling the shots 
and fulfilling His purpose. And we know that His purpose in, well, we know already now that His purpose is that Esther should be the queen. And all that's happened so far is working towards that. Sometimes our life is a little bit more like what we see in the book of Esther than what we see in the book of Exodus, isn't it? Yes, God is still a character in our story. He's working by His Spirit to draw us to Christ and changing us to be like Him. He hears our prayers. He answers them according to His perfect will. And sometimes we see Him doing extraordinary things. Yet on a day-by-day basis, we, don't, we may not see Him working in extraordinary ways, but God is still working sovereignly. He is still the author of the story. He's still working for our salvation. It's behind the scenes. He's, he's still calling the shots and fulfilling his purposes. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we read that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Sometimes we can recognize his, his hand at work. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes we think we can. We think we know what he's doing. And it turns out that we're wrong. He's actually doing something completely different. And the hiddenness of God's plan is, is like that here as well. Why do Esther's parents need to die when she's so young? Why does she have to be subjected to this terrible process? Why does she even have to become queen? Again, at this point of the narrative, we, we don't know the answer. By the end of the book, we know. And you know what? In our lives, it's like that too, isn't it? There are many things in our lives that we know we you ask, why is it like this? We don't know. But we know we are serving a sovereign God. And whatever circumstances we are in, we can trust that God is at work. We can trust and we can wait. And when we stand in eternity and we look back on our lives, then we will see that He has fulfilled His plan to save us, to make us like His Son. And we'll be thankful for what He has done, even though we, we don't understand it at the time. We've got to keep trusting Him. Well, the book of Esther uh, began uh, with the greatness of King Ahasuerus. That was the very first thing in the story. You remember that? Now, let's have a look at how it ends. If you go to the end of the book, it ends in chapter 10 with the greatness of Mordecai, one of the two heroes in the story. Isn't that interesting? And then, remember, what's the second thing in Esther? That was all those great feasts that the king was, was throwing, isn't it? Well, what's the second last thing in Esther? Oh, it's about a great feast that the Jews throw each year to celebrate the salvation that was won for them in Esther. Also very interesting. And so we see that the book moves from the, the greatness of Ahasuerus to the greatness of Mordecai. And it moves from the feasts of Ahasuerus to the feasts of the Jews. That's the trajectory of the book. But even that is not going far enough because if you look at where Esther is going in the whole Bible, when we get to the end, it's not just the greatness, the exaltation of, of Mordecai. When you go all the way to the end of the Bible, leave Esther, go all the way to the end, and what do we find? We find the exaltation of Christ. And it's not just a, at the end of Esther we've got, the, we, we, we've got the, the, the feast of the Jews. 
We go all the way to the end of the Bible and we've got the ultimate feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so while the beginning of Esther contrasts with the end of Esther, the far bigger contrast in the same direction is what we get at the end of the Bible. And so the exaltation of Ahasuerus should stand in contrast to the exaltation of Christ and the exaltation of Mordecai should be a little bit like the exaltation of Christ but on a much smaller level. Does that make sense? So when we get to the end of the book, we will see that Mordecai's exaltation is indeed a little bit like the exaltation of Christ. Together with Esther, Mordecai saved his people. After saving them, he was exalted among them. He sought their welfare and spoke peace to them all. But here at the beginning of the book, the emphasis is on King Ahasuerus. The rich, powerful king of a mighty empire, but insecure in himself. Spent one who spent so much time and effort to show off all his wealth and generosity and power to make himself look good. And when the bubble burst due to the refusal of his wife, he couldn't hack it. And his advisors helped him to transfer all his own insecurities to, to all the men in his kingdom. And so deal with Queen Vashti according to his insecurities while pretending to be concerned for the family life of all his people. And later allowing them to lead him to use a, a terribly sordid way of choosing a new king. A way in which he would legitimately have his own way with many women trying them out as if trying out new clothes before committing to one, without thought as to how this behavior would affect the lives of so many people. You see, in the end, this great king is not really great at all, is he? He's selfish, lustful, and insecure. King Jesus is never like that. He's always secure in his relationship with his father. Although by being very nature God, he humbled himself to become man. He came to serve in obedient service even to death on the cross. He did not exalt himself. The father exalted him, raised him from the dead, placed him in the highest place, gave him an empire far bigger than King Ahasuerus. For his kingdom, though not of this world, involves men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. And at his name, every knee must bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus is so much greater than Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, in seeking a bride, used and discarded these young women. Jesus did not come to use and abuse and throw his people away. Instead, he suffered on our behalf to make us his bride. For the church, all God's people together are seen as a one body as the, as the bride of Christ. And Jesus came for his bride. He loved us, his people, so much that, that he died for us to make us his. Uh, Ephesians 5, uh, 25 to 27 uh, says that husbands have loved their wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. That is what Jesus does. He loves his church. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Jesus is so much better than Ahasuerus. And the book of Revelation uh, points to that time when, when we will be married to him. Uh, we read that in our New Testament reading today. It's coming up on the screen as well. Uh, Revelation 19, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb, that's Jesus, the one who died for us, has come. And his bride, that is God's people together, the church, has made herself ready. The bride of Christ gets herself ready to meet the bridegroom, just as the young women in Esther adorn themselves to come to the king. But how does she get herself ready? Verse 8 continues. It is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The church, saved and washed and purified by her bridegroom, now adorns herself in the righteous deeds that please him. Even that is by God's grace because that is granted to her. But friends, that's what we're going to be doing, isn't it? doing good things to please our bridegroom. For unlike the young women of Esther's day, we know that our bridegroom loves us. We know that he died to save us. We know that he is faithful. We know we will be accepted and loved by him forever. What a great reason to adorn ourselves. And with the wedding comes the feast. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I see the feasts of Ahasuerus were, were grand and impressive, but that, that is the feast you don't want to miss. Where God and his people sit down and enjoy together in fellowship and love forever. Let me remind you, my friends, that God's plan for us is that we should become more and more like Christ, isn't it? That's the plan. So let me ask us a question. Are you and I more like Ahasuerus or more like Jesus? And how are we progressing? Remember the insecurity of Ahasuerus that motivated his behavior in chapter 1? Well, we can find our security in Jesus, can't we? If we've been accepted by God in Christ, if we have a place with Him in glory that will never perish or spoil or fade, we've got incredible security. The more we realize our true identity is in Christ, the more we look to Him, the less we need to brag about what we have in this world. We will learn to rejoice in Him, and not in our wealth or position or standing or possession. We won't need to try and impress other people with these things. Instead, the more we realize the love and acceptance God has given us in Christ, the, the more we are able to love others. And if we know the love of Christ, then we must, we must, we must not be like Ahasuerus who, who seeks to use others to boost his own ego. 
if we know the love of Christ, we must not be like Ahasuerus and simply use other people for our own pleasure and then discard them afterwards. Instead, we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves to serve others because Christ gave himself to serve us. And so, brothers and sisters, let us rejoice in our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, our King. Let us trust in the sovereign God who rules the world for our good and his glory. And may the Lord continue to change us to be less like Ahasuerus and more like his son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign God who rules the world. Thank you that you are at work, not just in the obvious things, but behind the scenes, in all things, for our good, to make us more like Christ in our character. Please help us to trust in your goodness and sovereignty even when we don't understand what you're doing and why. Thank you that we know your character in your son, Jesus. Thank you that he truly loves us and cares for us. And that he's shown us that in dying for us on the cross to, to wash us clean and present us to himself in splendor. Help us as his bride to respond in love and good works, adorning ourselves in righteous deeds to please him. And please keep preparing us for the great feast on that day. Please help us to keep on trusting your son. And please keep changing us to be more and more like him. We ask this in his name. Amen.